Hi, and welcome to Sisters Love Podcast. My name is Shelly. And my name is Shannon. We are sisters, and we talk about what we love to watch, love to learn, love to love, love to read. Well, you get the idea. Today, we're going to talk about movie musicals. We got the idea for the episode because we grew up obsessed with musicals at both the movies and in the theater. We were both happy to watch some that were new to us and revisit old favorites. In fact, there are so many we wanted to talk about that we've divided our discussion into two parts. Today, we'll be talking about musicals released in the 1970s and before. In part two, which will release two weeks from today, we'll talk about musicals from the 1980s and after. Musicals on a film have a big challenge that stage musicals don't have. Sometimes it's just awkward to watch people in a movie break into song for no apparent reason. So I think it's interesting how movies address this, or sometimes don't. For the purposes of this episode, I'm going to call this the breaking into song dilemma. It is also important to note the motivation behind the musical numbers within the film. They are utilized to provide emphasis, whether to an emotion or situation. Wikipedia gives name to a movie musical phenomenon that I was aware of but didn't know had an actual term. Quote, In the traditional manner of musical theater, called an integrated musical, every significant character in the stage version sings to express his or her own emotion and to advance the plot. The more you know. The first movie on our list is Top Hat, released in 1935. Neither of us had seen this before, but we included it because it features the infamous pair of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. The plot of this movie is not original. Fred Astaire plays Jerry Travers, a performer visiting Britain to star in a stage show. He meets a model, Dale Tremont, played by Ginger Rogers, and falls head over heels for her. There is some emotional drama revolving around mistaken identity. Before all is resolved, they live happily ever after. See, not very original. But what you really watch this movie for are the performances, which are awesome. Fred Astaire floats on the stage as if on a cloud when dancing. When he and Ginger dance together, you understand why they are such an iconic pair. I agree about Fred and Ginger, but really, who doesn't? He's one of the greatest dancers of all time, and she's every bit as good as he is. I'm going to disagree a bit about the movie's originality, though. This movie came out in 1935, and I think the reason it seems unoriginal is because so many movies after it stole its DNA and the DNA of other movies from the era. I was super charmed by it and thought it was sweet and funny. And the clothes were amazing. Helen Broderick, as Dale's friend Madge, is the unheralded star of this movie. She was comedy gold. I know people sing in it, but it still strikes me as more of a dance movie than a musical, for reasons I can't quite explain. That is a very fair point. I didn't think about it being the origin for similar plot lines. Wikipedia has a fun story about the filming of the cheek-to-cheek dance. 
I made reference to the clothes and how fabulous they are, and it's an actual plot point in the movie. Ginger Rogers designed her own dress for that number, and it's covered in feathers. It took so long to make, she didn't really get to practice in it, and apparently feathers were flying everywhere. Fred Astaire got angry and really upset Ginger Rogers, which really upset her mother. He apparently felt badly and later gifted her with a gold feather for her charm bracelet. Feathers became his permanent nickname for her, which I found charming and hope Ginger Rogers did too. Next up is Stormy Weather. I got interested in this movie when Cinefix, my favorite YouTube channel, covered the top 10 movie dance scenes of all time. Number one with a bullet was the Nichols Brothers dancing the jump and jive in the film. I literally sat on the sofa watching with my mouth gaping open, and I've probably watched this clip a dozen times since then. It was one of the single greatest things I've ever seen, and I don't just mean in the movies. I was also interested in the film because it was made in 1943, but has an all-black cast, which is unusual to say the least. Before we continue, can we emphasize again just how amazing that Nichols Brothers performance was? They are tap dancing on the bandstands, the stage, then the piano, going upstairs, and finally jumping over one another to the next stair down, landing in the splits. What? It was so crazy, and they made it look easy. When watching, you felt like, sure, I can do that. Anyone who has any history of dance understands how utterly impressive that is. It was so good. Really, if you haven't seen this performance, your life is incomplete. It's made all the more remarkable by the fact the brothers are self-taught. I'm not sure how you even learn that in a dance studio, much less all on your own. Stormy Weather stars Lena Horne as Selena Rogers, Bill Bojangles Robinson as Bill Williamson, and the one and only Cab Calloway as himself. The musical numbers aren't integrated and don't advance the plot or express the feelings of the characters in any way. Honestly, there isn't much of a plot, and the film is just an excuse to showcase the extremely talented cast. I do want to note that although the performances didn't advance the plot or emphasize an emotion or situation, they also didn't seem out of place. They were mostly standalone scenes, but still made sense in the grand scheme of the movie and were not awkward, in my opinion. I'm 100% with you on that. This movie made me feel all the feelings. The dancing and singing are some of the best I've ever seen in any musical. Yet, there are definitely some scenes and character portrayals that made me feel really uncomfortable, and with good reason. Some of this was obvious, including but certainly not limited to the duo in blackface. In 2010, the filmmaker and writer Cartina Richardson did a much better job than I could of talking about some of the more problematic aspects of the movie. She said, The film is primarily a vehicle for famous black talent in music and dance. These are glamorous blacks in romantic and dramatic leads. Blacks with sex appeal. Blacks with their own storyline, but simple characters they remain, playing roles that white America was comfortable with. 
Every character in Stormy Weather is an entertainer, first and foremost. As James Baldwin said, It is only in his music, which Americans are able to admire because a protective sentimentality limits their understanding of it, that the Negro in America has been able to tell his story. It is a story which otherwise has yet to be told and which no American is prepared to hear. That really resonated with me in the issues our society is still grappling with today. That said, I don't want to take away from the performances, which again are incredible. I completely agree on both counts. I should point out that this movie's DNA is all over that of one of our favorite modern movie musicals, The Blues Brothers. Not only does The Blues Brothers feature Cap Calloway, but the song That Ain't Right, sung by Fats Waller and Ada Brown, totally reminded me of Think by Aretha Franklin. We'll be discussing The Blues Brothers in part two of our musical movies episodes. And fair warning, it is one of my favorite movies of all time. So some fangirling will take place. Singing in the Rain is up next. This 1952 classic with Gene Kelly, Debbie Reynolds, and Donald O'Connor is a gem. The performances in this film were amazing. The story follows Gene Kelly as Don Lockwood, a silent movie star. When a rival movie studio introduces a talkie, he, along with his best friend Cosmo, played by Donald O'Connor, and the head of the studio must scramble to produce a talkie of their own. They decide to turn their currently in production movie, The Dueling Cavalier, into a musical, The Dancing Cavalier. The only problem is, Don's on-screen love interest, Lena Lamont, has a less-than-desirable voice and cannot sing. But they are audience sweethearts, so a plan is hatched. Don's real-life love interest, Kathy, played by Debbie Reynolds, will provide the vocals while Lena lip-syncs on film. One problem. They decide not to tell Lena, who is convinced Don is actually in love with her despite his very direct rejections. Needless to say, a little chaos ensues, but it all works out in the end. This is one of my all-time favorite movies, and I'm so happy you liked it. Gene Kelly is the ultimate leading man to me, and it seems crazy that this wasn't nominated for Best Picture. I'm glad he lived long enough to watch this movie become so beloved. Debbie Reynolds was great, but it was her first dancing role, and after watching Top Hat, I couldn't help but wonder what someone with the dance skills of Ginger Rogers could have done with the part. A funny story about the movie. Lena Lamont was played as someone with a terrible squeaky voice, but she's actually the one really speaking during the looping scene, not Debbie Reynolds. Gene Hagen, who plays Lena, apparently had a gorgeous voice. The two most notable music numbers, in my opinion, are Make Em Laugh, performed by Donald O'Connor, and, of course, Singin' in the Rain, performed by Gene Kelly. Make Em Laugh was a physically demanding performance, and Donald O'Connor had to spend several days in the hospital thanks to a -a four-pack-a-day cigarette habit. Gene Kelly was sick with a 103-degree fever for Singin' in the Rain, and the rain made his wool suit shrink as he was wearing it. I think the unofficial motto for this production was no pain, no performance. IMDb says that they accidentally destroyed the footage of Make Him Laugh. So after he got out of the hospital, 
Donald O'Connor had to film the entire number again. That is just so wrong. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Moses Supposes, the number with Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor. It's some of the best dancing I've ever seen. I'm a huge fan of Good Morning, too. But like most people, when I think of the movie, I think of Gene Kelly twirling around a lamppost. There's a reason it's one of the most iconic scenes in the movies. Our next movie is The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, a French musical from 1964, starring Catherine Deneuve and Nino Castelnuovo as Genevieve Emery and Guy Fouché, two teens in love. Genevieve works at her mother's umbrella shop in Cherbourg, and Guy is a mechanic at a local station. They are planning their futures together when he is drafted to serve for two years in the Algerian War. The night before he leaves, they spend the night together, resulting in a pregnancy. Genevieve vows to wait for him, but under the pressure of impending motherhood and the distance from Guy's absence, she chooses to marry a wealthy suitor who accepts her child as his own. When Guy finally returns from war to find Genevieve married and moved away, he is distraught. He turns to his aunt's nurse that he has known for years. They marry and build a life together with a son. Years later, Genevieve is passing through Cherbourg, the first trip she has made back since her marriage, and she runs into Guy. They share a brief, somewhat awkward yet bittersweet encounter as the movie ends, each of them at peace with the choices they have made. The movie is presented in three parts, the departure, the absence, and the return. This movie is one of the most gorgeous things I've ever seen. It's like a technicolor dream, to the point where it almost looks like it was colorized, but it definitely wasn't. Bernard Evian was the costume designer, set designer, and cinematographer, and he clearly had a vision for what he wanted the film to look like. Jacques Demy the director said, the film used color like a singing Matisse. But I learned something about myself. I want my musicals to have actual songs. Yeah, um, so the musical part of the movie is rather odd. There are no actual musical numbers in the film, but the entire script is sung. To clarify... There are no actual songs. They just sing all of their lines. I cannot describe in words how perplexing this was to watch. We've discussed the usual purpose of musical performance in film, to emphasize and move the plot forward. But here, there is a distinct lack of purpose in the musical component. In fact, I think the movie would have been significantly more effective without the singing. There was a moment when we hear Guy singing the script of a letter Genevieve is reading. He is discussing how dangerous and difficult it is being at war. He sings about seeing three people being killed. That moment seemed very out of place in song. It was so strange. There were a couple of times in the week after I saw the film that I found myself wanting to just sing about my day to my husband, Paul, because I couldn't get over how odd and jarring the whole thing was. (laughs) That said, I found myself incredibly touched by the movie. Despite its candy-colored palette, there was a real heart in the performances. 
I just couldn't get over the fact there weren't any actual songs. What was that about? It reminded me of the plot of Singing in the Rain. They were forced in a position to make a musical in order to be competitive with rival film studios. So they manipulate their already in-production movie to be a musical, but their execution, lip-syncing and all, was a far more successful endeavor than the umbrellas at Cherbourg. That is what this movie felt like. The studio needed a musical. This movie was already prepped, but there was no time to write in actual musical performances, and that was solved by just having them sing the script. It was just so confusing. But it is a beautiful and colorful film, and the performances are wonderful. I'm going to resist the urge to sing any additional commentary to our listeners, but that's what this movie makes you want to do. (laughs) Definitely. The director, Damien Chazelle, said that Umbrellas was one of his inspirations for La La Land, and that seems very obvious. While doing research for this episode, I found an article on the blog Classique called Color and Costume, From the Umbrellas of Cherbourg to La La Land. The author shows side-by-side shots from each movie, and there are so many similarities. It's very clear that the former inspired the latter. Emma Stone wears a dress that's a very similar color to the pink coat Catherine Deneuve wears for much of the film. Man, do I ever want that coat. I was not nearly as big a fan of La La Land as the author of the blog was, and thought that Cherbourg was an infinitely superior movie on just about every level. That said, I agree it's far more successful as a movie than it is as a musical. Cabaret The 1972 musical directed by Bob Fosse stars Liza Minnelli as Sally Bowles, Michael York as Brian Roberts, and Joel Grey as the Master of Ceremonies. The film ultimately earned eight Oscars, including one for Minnelli, Grey, and Fosse, but failed to win Best Picture. I have a bad memory about these sorts of things, and I had to look up what did win, and I was waiting to be scandalized. But nope. That year, The Godfather and Marlon Brando won Best Picture and Best Actor, respectively. So I'd say that decision has aged pretty well. Cabaret solves the breaking into song dilemma in the easiest way possible, by setting all but one of the musical numbers in an actual cabaret called the Kit Kat Club. Cabaret is definitely an integrated musical. Each song describes the feelings of the participant or advances the plot in some way. I'd never seen the movie before we watched it for this episode, and I know you hadn't either. What'd you think of it? It was so much more complex and serious than I was expecting, but I loved it, and Liza Minnelli was a goddess. The entire cast was ridiculously good, but Liza Minnelli is just mesmerizing. I couldn't take my eyes off of her. Cabaret takes place in Germany in 1931. Brian Roberts is a Cambridge-educated Englishman who comes to Germany to teach English. He meets Sally Bowles, a nightclub performer with, to put it mildly, a lot of joie de vivre. She and Brian become first best friends and then lovers. Sally subsequently meets a rich baron and the three of them become, shall we say, entangled. Despite all of this, The movie never lets you forget that fascism is taking over the country. 
and the only musical number performed outside the Kit Kat Club, a blonde-haired youth sings, Tomorrow Belongs to Me. The camera pans down to show that he's wearing a Nazi armband. And the movie ends showing that, in contrast to the beginning of the film, the audience at the Kit Kat Club is filled with Nazis. According to Wikipedia, the story is based on the semi-autobiographical stories of Christopher Isherwood. Brian is loosely based on him, and Sally Bowles is based on Jean Ross, an actual British cabaret singer. Candor and Ebb did the music for the original stage show and the movie. But I have to admit, besides the title track, I just didn't love the songs. I thought the performances were incredible, and I absolutely loved the movie itself. But I kept finding myself wishing I was listening to Candor and Ebb's music from any given production of Chicago. I also have to admit that after seeing the miniseries Bossy Verdon, I kept wondering how much of what I was seeing on screen in Cabaret was really dreamed up by Gwen Verdon, Bob Fosse's genius wife. We don't have time to get into their story here, but Sam Rockwell and Michelle Williams are amazing as Fosse and Verdon, and if you're at all interested in the story behind the stories, you should definitely check it out. I agree about the musical performances. While I did like them, they weren't as standout as most that we will discuss. Next up, we have Grease, starring John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. I had not seen this movie in at least 15 years, maybe more, and boy, was it a whole new experience watching it now. I remember it being fun with excellent music, but it is so problematic. First of all, we don't normally spend a lot of time talking about title sequences, but I had totally forgotten that the entire thing was animated. It seemed really odd. That was the first of many artistic choices in this film that I had trouble with, frankly. The second was the casting. I know older people are often cast as high schoolers, but I swear everyone in this movie straight up looked like they were 35 years old. Every guy was a total creeper. And I grew up in the 80s. Every guy was not trying to look up your skirt against your will like they were in this movie. It was just gross. We are completely on the same page regarding the opening sequence. I even stopped the movie to make sure I actually was watching Grease. How did we not remember that that's how it started? Olivia Newton-John plays Sandy, a new student at Rydale High from Australia. Sandy met Danny Zuko, played by John Travolta, in the summer, and they had a romance. When Sandy shows up at Rydell, it is to Danny's surprise since he thought that she was going back to Australia at the end of the summer. Danny told his friend group, the T-Birds, about Sandy, though his retelling of their romance was a far more illicit affair than reality. In turn, Sandy told her friend group, the Pink Ladies, about Danny, and needless to say, her version differs greatly. The leader of the Pink Ladies, Rizzo, played by Stocker Channing, knows Danny, and immediately arranges for he and Sandy to be reunited. Danny reveals his complete asshat persona in full form, and Sandy runs away embarrassed. This interaction is really the rest of the movie in a nutshell. 
Danny is a complete jerk and Sandy is naive and, quote, hopelessly devoted to Danny despite his very obvious red flag behavior. In the end, Sandy decides that she is not happy and she fixes this by completely changing who she is as a person in order to win the affections of a guy who treats her like crap. Yeah, that is the message we want to send to youth everywhere. I think we should call being treated badly by a man being Zucode henceforward. Although it wasn't just Sandy, no female was treated well in the movie. For example, Rizzo was presented as the 180 degree opposite of Sandy, and she was clearly derided by both the movie and her boyfriend. The T-Birds were not charmers. And some of the line delivery, ugh. When Danny and Sandy were talking at the diner at the beginning, he says, literally, don't make me laugh. Ha, ha, ha. Also, that fake cool that I was super into in high school, I would laugh out of a room now. He actually says, I have this image. Yeah, okay, old man, whatever. Ooh, and that, that radio personality who came to judge the dance contest hitting on a high schooler, and she's definitely hitting on him back and referring to maraschinos while making obscene hand gestures. It's, it's also gross. Danny even appears to want to be a decent human being at a few intervals throughout the movie, but he chooses his image every time, and the movie rewards him for it at the end. Also, I'm so over the trope of a clearly beautiful female lead transforming into hotness, like she wasn't gorgeous all along. And never mind that totally disregards her personality altogether. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. The lyrics to the music are also problematic, and the musical numbers in the film were far less impactful than I remember. The musical number I remember being the best was the dance competition where Danny and Cha-Cha win, and honestly, it is not that good. My mind definitely romanticized this movie into something it is clearly not. I harshly judge my younger self and her terribly inaccurate assessment of this movie. To be fair... There were a couple of things that I did like. First, the theme song. It's very Bee Gees-esque, which is totally my jam, but also funny for a movie set in the 50s, not in the 70s. And I still love You're the One That I Want, which is especially good if you take it out of context. I didn't love the dancing and hand jive, or frankly the fact that most of the women got treated like crap during it yet again but I did feel like it was the inspiration for the end of Footloose, which is a legitimately great musical number. John Travolta is also a national treasure on the dance floor. We have the best of this movie, Saturday Night Fever, and The Twist from Pulp Fiction. I do agree with you about the number with Danny and Cha-Cha, though. I was surprisingly underwhelmed by it this time around. It doesn't help that dance, though, that we'd watch some of the best couples dancing of all time for this episode. Was there anything you enjoyed? And did you notice that La Bamba was playing on the jukebox during the first diner scene? I thought that was a nice touch. I agree about the theme song, the song You're the One That I Want, and about John Travolta on the dance floor. I will also add that the performances were universally excellent, even if I hated the characters. 
But other than those fragments, I am just not a fan. I'm not sure all the performances were so good. They seem so stilted and cardboard cutout-like to me. So, you are correct, but I got the feeling when watching that that was what they were trying to accomplish. It wasn't good, but the actors did pull it off well. I think this is my take because I am familiar with a lot of the actors beyond this movie. I know they are good and can't imagine they interpreted the characters this way without specific direction. I think that's very valid. Let's just agree to put this one in the vault, but keep playing Grease and you're the one that I want when the mood strikes. Lastly, we have the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Tim Curry's theatrical movie debut as Dr. Frankenfurter, a scientist. This movie is so amazing, and I love it every time I watch it. The movie opens with Brad and Janet, played by Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon, at a friend's wedding. They decide to visit Barry's friend, Dr. Everett Scott, on their way home. However, they end up getting lost in a rainstorm and find themselves at the home of Dr. Frankenfurter for help. They are greeted by the doctor's servants, Riff Raff, a handyman, Magenta, a domestic, and Columbia, a groupie. It happens to be the evening of a party where the doctor is to reveal his latest experiment, Rocky, a reanimated creation made to be an ideal human specimen. Brad and Janet are thrown into a time warp where the tagline of the movie, Give Yourself Over to Absolute Pleasure, is explored by everyone. I first saw this movie in high school. Midnight showings were everywhere, and it just seemed like something super cool to do. It blew my mind to see people acting out the entire movie on the dais in front of the screen, and I felt like I was in the middle of something special. I drug a lot of people to those showings, and admittedly, some enjoyed it more than others. I've probably seen it about 15 times in the theater, and there was usually a main cast of fans dressed up like the characters, and then people who acted as understudies, waiting for their chance to lip sync along. I always felt a little sorry for the movie theater employees having to pick up after a crowd that's throwing toast and cards at the screen, though. Do you remember the first time you saw it? That is a very interesting question, as I have a very poor concept of time. I know I did not see it at the theater first. Unlike you, I almost never went out in high school, and still don't, so it was definitely an at-home viewing. But I can't remember exactly when... I want to say it was probably in my teens, but no later than my early 20s. I still have never been to a traditional midnight showing, but have seen a few stage performances, which were all excellent. The movie is truly a wild ride that is filled with oddities around every corner. The scene where we are first introduced to Dr. Frankenfurter is one of my favorites. As Janet is trying to convince Brad to leave because she is frightened and concerned, we see the elevator descending in the background. When Brad and Janet meet the elevator, the doors open to reveal Tim Curry, fully made up with dramatic makeup in a satin black cape with a high white collar looking absolutely vampiric. He disembarks and breaks into the song Sweet Transvestite, revealing his sparkling corset, garters, and high heels as he abandons the cape. At this point, if you were not completely mesmerized and invested, just accept this movie is not for you. I love rewatching this movie, 
because I notice new things every time. Although I admit that sometimes I just watch Sweet Transvestite when I need a little Tim Curry-related joy in my heart. The film takes the tropes of horror and sci-fi movies. For example, they're at the Frankenstein Castle. Frankenfurter is a kind of vampire. He creates a creature. And characters use science fiction technology. And the film uses the tropes for comic effect, although I wouldn't call the movie a comedy. I would call it very much not safe for work. So proceed with caution if that sort of thing concerns you. There's also a scene that's a throwback to King Kong at the end, when an angry, hunted Rocky climbs the radio tower carrying an injured Tim Curry. It's no accident that the previous Frankenfurter song references Fay Ray, who starred in the 1933 version of King Kong. Tim Curry, who originated the role of Frankenfurter in the stage show, is an absolute genius in this role, and I've never seen anyone relish playing a part more. I fell into a YouTube wormhole watching videos about the movie one night, and several of them mentioned that Mick Jagger was interested in the part. But Richard O'Brien, the creator of the stage show and movie, who also played Riff Raff, wouldn't entertain anyone but Curry. Now, normally, I'd have a problem with this, because there's not much in life that Mick Jagger doesn't improve for me. But I am 100% Team Tim Curry on this one. He was irreplaceable. When this movie was originally released in the theater, it bombed. Then the idea was born to start having midnight showings, where it grew its cult following and became so popular that it has continuously been shown in theaters since its release in 1975. One of my favorite songs is Don't Dream It, Be It. And I always thought that song perfectly encapsulated why people that love this movie really love it. It carves out a safe space for people who are different. People at one time or another have been criticized for being weird or for people who have just felt out of place. At Frankenstein's castle, it doesn't matter who you are. Someone will find you desirable. <laughs> that is, of course, unless Frankenfurter decides to literally axe you and hide you under the dinner table. Upon the second viewing, or 25th, as the case may be, you will notice that in the very beginning scene at the wedding, Tim Curry, along with the actors that play Riff Raff, Magenta, and Columbia, are all present as church employees. There are actually five other characters from the Frankenstein mansion that are at the wedding, too. I wonder if this was an intentional choice or simply a money-saving strategy. It's funny because I don't think I ever noticed until this viewing that at the church, Riff Raff and Magenta were dressed as the couple from the painting American Gothic. Then I fell down this internet rabbit hole about that and what it meant. There's also a copy of American Gothic in the Frankenstein Castle. And if you Google search Rocky Horror American Gothic, it also brings up a picture of Riff Raff and Magenta in their costumes at the end of the movie with very American Gothic-like pitchforks. I found an article that talks about this on the website bitchflix.com, but for some reason you can't access it right now. The title is The Rocky Horror Show and the Pitchforks of Puritanism. The title alone sets up the dichotomy between traditional American ideals and the hedonism of the gang at Frankenstein's castle, and I wish I'd been able to access it to find out more on their thoughts. 
That said, I think, despite the fact that Frankenfurter is criticized by Riff Raff and Magenta at the end of the film about his extreme lifestyle, the movie is really poking fun at state morality. Seeing members of the cast as church employees also made me wonder if the entire movie couldn't have been interpreted as some kind of weird dream. That might be a bit of a stretch, but regardless of the intent, I loved every minute of it. If you ever have the chance to see Rocky Horror as a live theater performance, you shouldn't miss it. I've seen two productions, one where they let you, quote, throw shit at them, and one where, quote, the performers bite back. And I highly recommend the former for maximum fun. There are so many movie musicals to choose from that, as you mentioned in the beginning, we have already planned a part two covering movie musicals from 1980 and after. That episode will air in two weeks, but next week we have Thanksgiving movies, including Home for the Holidays, Pieces of April, and Adam's Family Values, in case you want to watch before you listen. We love suggestions, so don't hesitate to let us know if you have ideas for future episodes. Email us at contact at sistersLovePodcast.com. If you're enjoying our podcast, please do us a huge favor and give us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps people find the show. The Sisters Love Podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Shelley Clark and Shannon Kelly. That's us. us. Music by Sean Mullins. We can't wait to talk to you next time. Until then, keep finding things you love, especially each other. Sisters.